Friends, there are people who throughout the ages have disguised themselves to deceive those who are genuinely seeking the Lord, and they do it for their own gain. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we move on to part two of a message from Pastor Nick called Tempted by a Different Gospel. And we're in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Pastor, as I look through this passage quickly, I notice multiple exclamation points from Paul as he writes this. So what kind of passion are we seeing from him here? Is he angry? Is he excited? What, why all the punctuation marks? We see a passion here that is both serious in its nature and very loving in its expression of affection. And it's amazing considering the very difficult things that Paul is dealing with here. But he cares so deeply about them and their spiritual condition that he is willing to do anything and everything to make sure that they stay pure in the Lord Jesus. So then he's using passion out of love to, is it rebuke in the midst of this or what, what is he doing? Well, there's certainly an element of correction, but the correction comes because he loves them. And, you know, I think that that happens for us naturally in the Christian life. When we are spiritually invested in another person, they come to faith in Jesus through a conversation that we have, or when we are in a small group with them or read the Bible with them, we have a passionate investment in their growth. And when they start to stray, that causes us even more concern than it otherwise would. And our desires to see them come back to the middle are powerful desires. Well, let's see how Paul expresses that passion and love now in part two of a message called Tempted by a Different Gospel. If the focus on Jesus isn't his work on the cross, and if the focus on the Spirit isn't the empowerment of faith and faithfulness to Jesus, then you are receiving a different gospel. And so Paul calls these teachers super apostles. Allegedly, nothing ever goes wrong for them. They have strength and health and wealth because they have the Spirit, at least they claim. And anyone who doesn't have those things must not have the Spirit, so they claim. And of course, the title, Super Apostle, is dripping with sarcasm. As a person who greatly appreciates sarcasm, I love it when Paul engages in that type of rhetoric. It's oozing with mockery. There's nothing super about these imposters. They are promising something more than Christ. And Christ is enough. So what? <laughs> Some of you at this point might be thinking to yourself, pastor, that's, that's like moderately interesting. Why does this matter for us right now? Why does the theological argument with a church 2,000 years ago, how does it bear implication onto my life? Well, there are a number of different implications. Let me offer just three very quickly. Paul says in verse one, he asks them to bear with him to engage in a little foolishness. And he's referring not only to the fact that he's boasting in the gospel, and in that, that he is meeting these peddlers on the field of boasting, which seems foolish, but also the content of the gospel itself, we know Paul is referred to as foolishness. Here's the implication. You need to know this, that it will look like foolishness to the world. It will look like foolishness to the people around you who don't know God. 
If you continue to boast in confidence in Christ while you are undergoing great difficulty in life, because for thousands of years, the world has believed that the good life is a life that is free from pain and turmoil. How could you possibly be a child of God if your life is hard? They ask. Must be foolishness, they say. But friends, that's the boast that we make. <laughs> Not that glory is for us right now, but that through Jesus, glory is coming and we will enjoy it soon enough. And so we are faithful to him until the very end of our days. That's implication number one. Implication number two is that, friends, there are many out there today that believe in what we would call an over-realized eschatology, a belief system that promises you more than Christ. It points to a false hope and an expectations for the things in this life that God has promised for eternity, and he may or may not give to us in some measure right now. It gives people a false assurance of supernatural healing. It gives people false promises of unique spiritual visions. It lauds the voices of those who claim to see angels. Now, God may grant some of those things in some instances, but this is not the promise that he gives by his spirit to every Christian for all time. And the result is that this type of teaching leaves millions upon millions of people with a different Christ, a different spirit. And Paul says a different gospel. And when those promises aren't delivered upon, people become despondent. They're often riddled with guilt because they think that they are the reason why God isn't acting in the way that he's promised. They are the reason. Their guilt, their sin, their difficulty is the reason why God wouldn't bless them or heal them. But friend, in the gospel of Christ, God gives hope to you. God blesses you, not based on you being good enough, not based on you finding your own favor with him. He gives you hope and blessing based on what Jesus has done for you and for all of those who have put their faith in him. You can live in joy and in confidence when you believe in a true Jesus, a true spirit that results in a true gospel. And so implication number three is just simply this. It means that our natural desire for immediate gratification and personal autonomy can be suspended <laughs> and it can be replaced by a reliance on God through the joys and the pains of life. Paul seems to be indicating that standing in Christ means standing against those who intentionally distort Christ. Standing in Christ means standing against something. <laughs> and sometimes it means standing against someone. It means standing against those who distort Christ. And so Paul gives his second reason for boasting. In verses 7 through 12, he is boasting because of a no-charge ministry. 
He's not charged them for speaking the gospel to them, as he indicates in verse seven and on. He speaks it free of charge. He's taken support from other churches to do so, he says. You might be surprised to know of some of the incredible speaking fees that public speakers can get these days. Just a little bit of research will let you know that author Malcolm Gladwell, who's one of the better storytellers of our time, commands $80,000 for an hour of speaking. Former President Bill Clinton gets about $200,000 per speaking engagement. And the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, has received up to $400,000 for an hour of speaking on monetary policy. Former President Donald Trump, over a million dollars per engagement. Why? Well, celebrity, notoriety, the importance of the message, they all point to the value, the monetary value that people will place on the message and thus there's high speaking fees for the speaker. In the first century, people who had celebrity and notoriety and something important to say charged high speaking fees as well. And in fact, it was common knowledge that the greater the importance of the message, the higher the fee would be. But Paul comes to them with the message of the gospel and his opponents mock him because he charged them nothing, nothing at all. And thus they claim that his message must be worth nothing, nothing at all. And so he makes two oaths to them in this boast. He says, verse 10, the boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia, which means in the surrounding verses, he's not going to start taking money from them despite the fact that they're mocking him for it because it actually points to the motives of his counterparts. He doesn't want to be confused with them or their message because this gospel of the Lord Jesus is distinct. And secondly, he gives them an oath with regard to his continued love for them. Why? Because I do not love you, he says in verse 11. God knows I do. And his love compels him to speak even some difficult things. In some contexts in the medical community, there is a practice that's widely referred to as mutual pretense. In many cases, mutual pretense is something that takes place after a period of treatment for a particular patient has run its course and it becomes clear to everyone that it's not working and that the patient is going to die. Despite the fact that this dark reality is clearly known by all parties, the doctor, the patient, the family of the patient, they will often deal with the fact by talking about anything other than the reality that the patient is going to die. They'll talk about what will happen once they get out of the hospital or what they're going to do when everyone gets better. They'll talk about family business, anything but the truth of impending death. Mutual pretense is a kind of survival mechanism. It allows everyone to continue talking to each other while not having to actually talk about what's going on, not having to deal with the brute reality of death. Friends, sadly, there are many Christians today and many churches that practice mutual pretense without even knowing it. They see false notions of the gospel, but they pretend like nothing is wrong. And thus, they allow people to live under the idea that everything is okay and everyone is okay. 
There's no torpedo that could sink this ship when all the while they're dying. Paul is a spiritual surgeon. He's the surgeon who does no such thing and he does it because he loves them. He sometimes This love is expressed in delivering them good news. Sometimes this love is expressed in delivering bad news. It doesn't allow people to believe what isn't true. As a result, he saves them from dying because the stakes of the gospel are that high. Now, some people hear that, and I want to pause here just for a minute and back out. Some people hear that and say, well, here comes the truth police. (laughs) And we've all probably met people along the way that view themselves as the truth police or the purity police. And anybody who doesn't align accordingly, they're just mean and nasty and a jerk. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about clarity. Clarity when the stakes are the absolute highest. And Paul delivers that kind of clarity to them. Love through truth, and he boasts in this truth and in this love. And so standing in Christ means that sometimes we stand against those who intentionally distort Christ. And that brings Paul to his third reason for boasting. He's boasting as an apostle because in his midst are false apostles. Falsity that is presented as truth is really dangerous, especially if it is something you stake your life on. It's even more so when you stake your eternity on it. A teacher who conveys such a thing is another kind of danger. And Paul takes everything that he's been giving them in this warning and he brings it all to a very pointed accusation and to a head. It's the most direct condemnation that he can give. Look at verses 13 and 15. He says this, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as the apostle of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. False apostles are not Christians. (laughs) They're disguising themselves as such in order to deceive. They're not merely ignorant nor are they just slightly off in their theology. When they distort the gospel itself, the consequences are of the most serious kind. And make no mistake about it. In verse three, he alludes to them being deceivers like the serpent. And here he makes the accusation explicit. Friends, there are people, you need to know this, there are people who throughout the ages have disguised themselves to deceive those who are genuinely seeking the Lord and they do it for their own gain. And Paul says in the sharpest of words, they do it as agents of Satan. And so he grounds the claim in verse 14. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In verse 15, he makes the implication. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And so how do you know? How do you know if the teaching you get is true or false? If it leads to life and eternity and salvation 
or if it leads to damnation and to hell? How do you know? The answer is to rely on what the Bible says. Because most people who engage in an overrealized eschatology who promise more than Christ, they promise more than the Bible says. The richness of God's word and the certainty and the sufficiency of it is for your good. And what does the Bible say about the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It says that through his perfect life, he was worthy to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin, a penalty which he paid on the cross, that all who would believe in him would be forgiven and they would receive a new life in his name right now and an eternal life with God forever. And so as a result, we live by faith through knowing that Jesus has secured our future and that the spirit of God guides us in the present through the joys and the sorrows, through the successes and the failures, through health and through suffering until Jesus returns or we die and we get to enjoy eternity with him forever. That's the gospel. That's Christ. You can have that hope. You can have that joy. You can have that peace. You can have that security. All you need, Jesus says, is to repent from your sins and to receive the free forgiveness that he offers. And each one of us is called to a decision point along those very lines. You don't put your faith in Jesus just to make your life better. You don't put your faith in Jesus because you think there'll be no more suffering the day that you do. That's not the gospel, Paul says. The gospel is that you have a mortal and immortal need for the forgiveness of sin to be with God forever. And Jesus provides that exact opportunity. But watch out. There will be no shortage of deceitful workmen who will try to give you another gospel. Let me conclude with two stories to illustrate the point. For more than 40 years, a lighthouse stood on a large peninsula jutting out into the Tasman Sea in Southern Australia. It stood at a place where it shouldn't have. And it was luring ignorant ships into the very rocks that they were trying to avoid. The cliffs around Cape St. George, just south of Jervis Bay, were notorious for shipwrecks. So it was decided that a lighthouse was needed for the safe navigation of coastal shipping. In 1857, the colonial architect, Alexander Dawson, began looking for a site suitable for a lighthouse on Cape St. George. But unfortunately, Dawson was more interested in the ease of construction rather than providing an efficient navigation aid. And so when the pilot's board went to verify the location Dawson chose, they found that the site was not visible from the required approaches. They also found Dawson's map suffered from discrepancies so grave that it was impossible to decide whether positions marked on the map really existed. The board also suspected that Dawson chose the site solely because it was situated closer to a quarry that he planned to obtain the stones from. But despite the glaring deficiencies and disagreement by the majority of the board, for reasons not known, the chairman of the board authorized the construction of the lighthouse anyway. 
And for the next four decades, 40 years, the ill-sighted lighthouse was responsible for some two dozen shipwrecks. Eventually, in 1899, the lighthouse was replaced by the point perpendicular lighthouse in a much more suitable location on this part of the coast. But even after the decommissioning, the lighthouse continued to cause navigational problems, especially when moonlit nights, when the golden sandstone tower glowed in the dark. So near the turn of the century, the tower was reduced to rubble to prevent any further disaster. What a picture of people who stand to speak for God, but offer you a different Christ, a different spirit, and as a result, a different gospel. Standing in Christ means that we stand against those who intentionally distort him. Why? Because eternal life and death are the things that are at stake. It is that serious. But friends, when you know Christ, when you really know him and trust him and begin to enjoy him, there is no greater value. In the late 1800s, Charles Berry, an English preacher, became the pastor of Great Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. And one day Barry described how earlier in his years he had come to faith in Jesus Christ. There had been a time in Barry's early ministry when he preached a very thin gospel, really no gospel at all. As did the Corinthians, he looked upon Jesus as merely a noble teacher, but not as a divine redeemer. And late one night during his first pastorate, as he sat in a cozy study, there came a knock on the door. And he opened the door and he found a typical Lancashire girl with a shawl cover over her head and clogs on her feet. Are you the minister? She asked. Getting the affirmative answer, she went on breathlessly. You must come with me very quickly. I want to get my mother in. Thinking that this was a case of another drunken mother out in the streets, Barry said, well, you must go and get a policeman. No, 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 the girl said. My mother is dying and you must come and get her into heaven. Barry got dressed. He followed her for a mile and a half through the lonely streets in the middle of the night. He knelt at the woman's side and he began telling her how good and kind Jesus was and how he'd come to show us how to live. And then the desperate woman cut him off and said, Mr., There's no use in that for the likes of me. I'm a sinner. I've lived my life. It's over. Can't you tell me of someone who can have mercy upon me and save my poor soul? I stood there in the presence of the dying woman, Barry said, and I realized I had nothing to tell her. In the midst of sin and death, I had no message. In order to bring something to that dying woman, I leapt back to my mother's knee, to my cradle faith, and I began to tell her the story of the cross and of a Christ who is able to save to the uttermost. And as the tears began to run down the woman's cheeks, now you're getting it, she said. Now you're helping me. And Barry concludes the story by saying, 
through the words, <laughs> I got her in. <laughs> and blessed be to God, I got myself in as well. Now, of course, he doesn't mean that he obtained heaven for himself. He means that knowing the true gospel to save sinners and to appropriate your trust to the Lord Jesus is the greatest hope, the greatest joy, and the greatest confidence in this life. It is for him, it is for me, and it can be for you. And so I commend this Christ. In the face of all of the false Christs that are presented, I commend this Christ to you. Well, that wraps up today's message from Dr. Nick Gatsky. And before we sign off today, let's bring him back in. Dr. Gatsky, we have got a resource available for gifts to a better word today. This one's from J.I. Packer. He's a famous theologian. He is a famous theologian, probably one of the most influential theologians in the last 50 years or so. And he wrote this little book called 18 Words, which is super helpful. It's a book about 18 significant words that we see in the Bible that help us understand the Christian life, help us understand how God interacts with us through salvation and in an ongoing sense. And in a way that only J.I. Packer can do. Deep, but it's concise. It's super helpful. And I would commend that resource to anybody. Yeah, it's called 18 Words, the Most Important Words You Will Ever Know. And these will help you better understand the basic principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this resource, a book from J.I. Packer, can be yours with a gift this month to A Better Word. How do you get your gift in today? Well, go to our website. It's abetterword.org, abetterword.org. There you can learn more about what we're all about and submit your gift today. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.